All right, John chapter 4. All right. It'd help if I was there, right? All right. Verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Note that. He needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank uh, from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said well, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say, that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you speak or seek? Excuse me. Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have food to eat, of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans who had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed of his, because of his word, his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. All right. Well, I've entitled this message, God Loves the Outcast. Now, George Sanders, some of you may have heard his name before. Uh, 
He had been married four times. Uh, one of his wives happened to be Zsa Zsa Gabor. Um, he was a well-known uh, actor. He had power. He had fame. He had prestige. And one day he decided to down five bottles of Nembutal, uh, committing suicide in a hotel room in Spain at the age of 65. And when they found him, they found a suicide note next to his body. And it said this, Dear world, I'm leaving because I'm bored. I feel I've lived long enough, and I'm leaving you with your worries in this sweet cesspool. Good luck. Good luck. He's right about one thing. This world is a cesspool. It's filled full of murderers, rapists, druggies, alkies, you name it, you got it, right? This world is a cesspool. But thank God that God doesn't think of us that way because he didn't jump out of the cesspool, he jumped into it. He came in to save us from our sins. And we're going to look at three movements in this passage today. We're going to look at the Messiah who seeks, verses 1 through 26. We're going to see the Messiah who works, verses 27 through 38. And we're going to see the Messiah who saves, verses 39 through 42. You know, as we go through this passage, I can't help but think of, you know, John the disciple at the ripe age of 90, under the inspiration of the Spirit as he pens these words. And there's a specific intent behind this passage. He wants us to understand something as it pertains to the church. There are to be no prejudices whatsoever. The Jews, the disciples, and this woman, woman of Samaria lived with inherent prejudices. And how important is that for you and for me to understand that we shouldn't live with those type of biases? And I'm not, I'm not just speaking about ethnic prejudice whether you're white, black, Arab, Mexican, Chinese, I'm referring to something else. I'm referring to all prejudices as it relates to the kingdom of God. Well, what are you talking about, Fernando? Well, we're, t we're talking about folks that we're uncomfortable talking to. These are the people that we go out of our way to avoid. I'm referring to folks we might consider failures. This could be your parents, Siblings, the immoral person, the tattooed person, the intellectual, the whole gambit, you name it. And God forgive us because we can be that way, can't we? We avoid specific people because they might rub us the wrong way or we're just uncomfortable being around them. You know, I, I remember a certain uh, sister used to come here and she'd been here for years and years and years. And, you know, we got to talking one day about, you know, how she came to come to Calvary Chapel. And uh, she says, well, you know, I, I came out of a predominantly black church. And then one day my son says, uh, Mom, are there going to be any white people in heaven? And she, she felt the burden. She realized, what kind of impression is my child getting? And that's how she ended up here. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful what kind of impression we leave our kids and John is concerned. You know, someone once said, as Christians, we've been forgiven all. And since we've been forgiven all, we should be the greatest empathizers of all. And this passage set before us is a great illustration of how hopeless we are without God. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone. God loves what this world considers as worthless. He loves the forgotten, and he loves the outcast. Let's look at our first point, the Messiah who seeks. Notice here in verse 1, he says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Interesting here how John uh, points out um, uh, this bit of insight for us. Do you remember back in, in chapter 3, verse 26, the Pharisees tell John, Hey, that person you were bearing witness to, that guy over there beyond the Jordan, well, guess what he's doing? He's baptizing and making more disciples than you. So what they were trying to do, and it seems to me, they were trying to muster up some controversy between Jesus and John. And John wouldn't have any of it. He says, there's no controversy, guys. He says, uh, matter of fact, he tells us in verse 27, 
a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He says, guys, relax. There's no controversy. He says, as a matter of fact, he must increase and I must decrease. He understood his role. He understood that he was a co-laborer when it pertains to the kingdom of God. And notice it says here, but when Jesus had heard that the Pharisees knew that the masses were trending towards him, he departs for Galilee. And later we're going to discover that that is where he's going to spend the majority of his ministry up in the northern Galilean region. And notice here in verse 2, he says, Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Again, important to note, Jesus didn't uh, baptize anybody, as far as we know. Why? Because he didn't want to confuse anybody with his baptism, which was going to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with John's baptism. And you can pick this up in Matthew uh, 3.11 and John uh, chapter 1, verse 33, where we're told John was sent to baptize with water. Notice here in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria because the weather was bad or there was road closures or the terrain uh, was, was difficult. Uh, the word needed in the Greek is in the emphatic. It means it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Think about this. Why did Jesus leave Judea? I mean, things were cooking, man. People were repenting at the message. People were getting baptized. I mean, it was hopping. Things were going great. And all of a sudden, he decides that he's going to leave. Well, to further uh, make the point here, Jesus himself experienced some opposition in Jerusalem. Remember how he was in the temple overturning the money changers' tables because they were exploiting the people of God? And of course, this didn't sit well with Annas the high priest or with any of the other Jews. And then we're told there were some Pharisees who had questions regarding Jesus. Nicodemus, for example, being a Pharisee, came to Jesus by night, right? Saying, we know, we, we, not just him, we, we know you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, if you remember Nicodemus at this point in time, he is the prominent teacher in all Israel. He represented the heartbeat of Judaism. If you wanted to be a student of the law, that's the guy you wanted to sit under. And so he and his fellow Pharisees were having discussions as to who this man was. And so Nicodemus comes to him by night. Now, Nicodemus stands as a, a complete contrast to the Samaritan woman. He was at the pinnacle of Judaism, a religious man, highly regard, regarded among his community. She was at the other end of the spectrum, an ungodly woman shunned by her community. He was a picture of a moral man. She was a picture of an immoral woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Two different people on two different ends of the spectrum, but both equally needed a savior. So what is John trying to tell us here? Well, the route from Judea to Galilee takes about three days. So if you travel, traveled westerly, it would take you six days. Or if you traveled on the eastern side along the Jordan, that too would take you six days. So what's the problem? Why, why not just go through Samaria and make it easy for everybody else? Well, the Jews didn't make it a habit to go through Samaria. You see, the Samaritans were a problem for the Jew. There was a deep-seated hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. You know, the rabbis would pray, Lord, Lord, we pray there's no resurrection for the Samaritans. Imagine that, if you heard a pastor pray that. Lord, Lord, we pray there is no resurrection for and you fill in the blank. So I would never pray that. People did. People did. The hatred started when the Assyrians invaded Israel. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came into Israel and conquered the northern kingdom. And it was their practice to take captives back to their country. They put fish hooks in the mouths of their captives and lead them back to Assyria. And this served several purposes. One, it wouldn't allow them to organize and retaliate. 
And two, it would offer less resistance. And not only did they displace people, but they also resettled the land with foreigners. You could pick this up in 2 Kings 17, where we're told that the Assyrian king um, resettled the, the land with Babylonians, uh, Kuthites, and people from Ava, and to name a few. So you had foreigners living in the land with the few remaining Jews that were there. There was a problem, though. The foreigners started to experience problems in the land. The Lord had sent lions there, killing some of them. And they began to deduce, hey, there's a problem here. What's going on? You know, we don't know the local customs. We don't know the regional gods. So they figured, you know, we don't know the rituals of the land. So what do we do? If we don't, if we don't do anything about this, we're going to end up on some plate for a lion. So they send word back to the uh, king of Assyria, informing him over the issue. And they suggested, hey, you know what? Those priests you took, why don't you send some of them back so they can teach us the rituals of the land? That we can learn about the God of the land. And the king of Assyria thought, you know, that's a good point. Let's go ahead and let's send one priest back. He ends up settling in Bethel. And he begins to instruct the foreigners the fear of the Lord. The problem was it was only head knowledge. Because as you read the passage, the only thing they learned was, okay, this is the God of the land. But they continued and maintained to worship their false gods. It, it was here, but never here. Didn't change them. And we know people like that, right? People have crosses in their kitchens, statues in their bedrooms, and a lucky rabbit's foot in their keychain, right? They want to cover all bases. You know, late in the... Oh, let me back up here. Um, there was also another problem that developed. The Jews began to intermarry with the foreigners. Therefore, their bloodline was tainted. You know, late in the 6th century, the Jews returned from exile in Babylon... And intending to rebuild the temple, the, the Samaritans see the Jews returning. And they say, hey, here we have our picks. We have our, our shovels, our axes. We're ready to go. We'll, we'll help her rebuild the temple. And the Jews looked at them and said, no thanks. You're half-breeds. You're half-breeds. And of course, this insulted the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans have been at odds since then. Today, there's still a community of Samaritans that exist in Israel. It's a small community, but they're still there. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And because they embraced only those books, they developed some very interesting ideas. For example, Mount Gerizim, which is highly venerated, was located towards the south side of Samaria. And in Scripture, Mount Gerizim is the mountain of blessing, while Mount Ebal to the north is the mountain of cursing. And these are some of the things the Samaritans believed. They believed the Garden of Eden was originally located on Mount Gerizim. They believed that after the flood, Noah's Ark rested on Mount Gerizim. They believed when Abraham offered up Isaac, it wasn't Mount Moriah, it was Mount Gerizim. They believed when Moses came down with the law, it was on, you guessed it, Mount and it's no wonder later in our passage that the Samaritan woman says, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountains. And you Jews say that worship is to take place in Jerusalem. And that's where he's supposed to worship. So to the Samaritans, the Pentateuch and Mount Gerizim was everything. The Jew, on the other hand, would say, Haha, we have Jerusalem. We have the temple. We have 39 books. Are you kidding me? There's no competition. So you can imagine the hatred between the two. And you can see why the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. In their estimation, their bloodline was tainted just as their theology was. And because of this incredible hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews would rather avoid Samaria than travel through it. Notice verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being worried from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So here they are. They arrive in Sychar. And please note verse 6. Jesus was wearied. Which tells me something. He was 100% man 
100% God. And of course, the agnostics would love to tell you otherwise, but he would fatigue. He would hunger. And later we're told he would sweat. He would sweat great droplets of blood. Does a spirit do that? No. He was 100% man. We're also told that Jacob's well is here. Jacob purchased this land in, in Genesis 33 for 100 pieces. Jacob conveyed the land to Joseph in Genesis 48. Joseph's bones were brought out of Egypt and buried in Samaria in Joshua 24. The land is significant to the Jews. And by the way, that well still exists today. It's still there. And notice, if you will, the time. It was a six-hour. That means it was noon. And what's interesting about this scene is all the disciples decide to go to town to go buy food. Not one of them stays behind. I find that kind of interesting. And I wonder if Jesus sent them into town or they felt, you know what? A force of 12 guys is more intimidating than two or three disciples. I tend to think Jesus wanted to be alone with this woman because he was going to reveal some very deep, personal things about her. Things she's obviously not proud of. And I love this about Jesus because he's personal. He doesn't air out our dirty laundry. He approaches us. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water and said, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And again, I could just see the scene. The disciples leave, you know, they're going to town. They're going to go buy, their intent is to go buy food. And I'm wondering if, if as they're going, you go, who's that lady? She's got a water pot. You know, they probably cross paths for all we know. And notice she comes to this well in the middle of the day to a well that's normally virtually unoccupied. But there's one person there. Why? Why did she come in the middle of the day? Well, the custom was to draw water early in the morning to escape the heat of the day. Normally, the woman would arrive early and stand at the well, taking turns to draw water. And it was during this time, many of the women would catch up with their gossip. I mean, the news of the day, you know, the current events, right? You know, uh, they didn't have Facebook or social media, and the ladies actually talked. The women actually talked. And no doubt she came to the well late in the day to avoid the women. She wanted to avoid the looks, the awkwardness of her immoral living, and she wanted to avoid the shame. She rather, rather put up with the heat of the day rather than the heat that they gave off. And I could just see this woman coming, as it were, day in, day out, carrying this water pot to a well where she probably used to enjoy the fellowship of the women. Unfortunately, those, that's just a faint memory. Just a faint memory to her. How would you approach this woman? How would you approach her? Stand there and say, I'll wait till she says something. Right? Isn't that how we are? You know, I was challenged with this this week. And it seemed like every time I turn around, there's some person that I normally would probably avoid. I'm here, I'm getting gas, and there's a homeless woman right next to the door. And, you know, I didn't wait for her to say anything. I'm like, Lord, you're challenging me in this area. All right. I walk up and go, how are you doing today? And she beamed with a big smile. Can I get you something to eat? She goes, yeah. I'll take some sour cream uh, chips. And be right back. And I'm like, you know, Lord, thank you. You, you. you love these people. You crave them. So I challenge you. Just, well, let me get through. You'll see what I mean. And no doubt she sees him, and they're alone, and I can just see her lowering the bucket. And then, she, then she, just, she begins to draw the water out, and he, as the water's coming up, he says to her, Hey, can I get a drink? Can you give me a drink? He met her where she was at, literally, in her routine. You know, today they call it the grind, right? This is what she does, and he meets her right where she's at. He doesn't part the clouds and... A beam of light hits her and there's a big epiphany. No, he, he meets her right where she's at. And that could be at work. That could be at Starbucks. No, no, not Starbucks. It could be at a library, it, it, movie theater. It could be anywhere in the street. 
God will meet you there. And I wonder how he said it. He didn't say, hey, woman, give me a drink. He's gentle. You know, Scripture says he's full of grace and truth. I'm sure he's been expecting this moment for a long time because she is the reason he needed to go through Samaria. And he says to her, can I have a drink? He leaves Judea, as it were, and he makes a special trip to whom in the eyes of this world, to this woman who's an outcast. He leaves Judea behind. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. <laughs> Please note her bewilderment. She states three obvious problems. One, she's a Samaritan. Two, She's a woman. And three, he was a Jew. What's the problem? Well, he would have been drinking water out of her vessel, which have made him unclean. And she's bewildered. She goes, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, you know, back in that day, the rabbis also had another precept that a man should not speak to a woman publicly if they were concerned over their reputation. And they carried it to such an extreme that if a Jew or rabbi was walking down the street and they saw their mom, they couldn't say hello to their mom. He couldn't couldn't talk to his wife in public. He couldn't talk to his own daughter in public. That's the extreme that they took it to. There was also another Jewish group they called the bruised and the bleeders. Because they'd walk down the street and they saw a woman, they'd cover their eyes, and they end up bumping and everything and hitting buildings, and they end up getting hurt. So they called them the bruised and the bleeders. And here's a Jew who's willing to engage her. And not only a Jew, she sees a rabbi. And no doubt a rabbi had never spoken to her before. This is the first time in her life a rabbi speaks to her. They wouldn't talk to a woman, let alone take water from a Samaritan woman. And I wonder how she said it. I wonder if she's snarky about this. You know, oh, water, okay, yeah, you know, and, you know, and she knows men. This isn't her first rodeo. And listen, as we move through the passage, we're going to see uh, that she's a woman who's jaded about life, especially uh, regarding men. Apparently, this was her weakness. She has sought security and her identity in her relationships with men. She's not married. She hasn't been married not once, not twice, not three times, but five times. J-Lo. Um... She says, I've been there. I've done that. And we're, and we're not told the reasons why she's been married five times. We're not told if they're all by divorce. We don't know if some of her husbands have passed away. We don't know if she has any children. Or maybe she couldn't have any children. That's the reason why she's been married five times. We don't know. However, we have to assume that she is the problem. Why would I say that? Because she is currently living with a man who is not her husband. Let me ask you, what's her name? We don't know her name. We don't know her name. And she looks at this man and she says, oh, you want a drink, huh? I wonder what else you're going to want. Let me guess, you want my Instagram as well, right? <laughs> She's used to knowing what men want. She's no longer naive. And apparently she, she knows the game. But Jesus is not playing the game she thinks he's playing. <laughs> no dealings with the Samaritans. Imagine that the church adopted the same position. Imagine if Calvary Chapel Pasadena has no dealings with cheaters, has no dealings with the stoners, no dealings with pornographers. Imagine that. That's the loss of the world. Imagine if we didn't deal with these people. And I'm so glad Jesus sees the broken. He reaches out to them. There's no prejudice. There's no bias with him. If you know him, then you know he saw you in your broken state. And that's what the church should be known for. That's what you and I should be known for. To reach out to this broken world. And you say, well, I don't like where you're taking this. Well, get prepared. We're going to get a little more uncomfortable. And Jesus said in verse 10, 
He answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She's thinking, Okay, you're going to gift me something, right? Isn't that what all men do? They all promise you something, right? And you Jews, you know, all you've done my whole life is you've looked down at me my whole entire life, and now you're going to give me living water. Is that it? Really? And I'm supposed to know who you are. Imagine what she's thinking here. She only saw a Jew. She didn't know him as Messiah yet. Now the Jews also use the expression of living water to describe a water source in that day. It commonly described springs, streams, or fountains in contrast to dead and stagnant water. In that region of the world, it is very arid. And what they would do is they would hew out these cisterns out of rock and they would collect thousands and thousands of gallons of water because, again, things get pretty hot. So they they try to collect as much water as possible. And these cisterns were throughout Israel. And I remember we were up at Nimrod's castle and we saw these cisterns where they collected water. and, and, And I was excited. I'm like, great, I finally get to see a real cistern. You know, you see pictures and stuff. So I'm excited. And the first thing I got hit was a smell. I'm like, whoa. Look in and there's a, a layer of algae. And there's bugs. Well, that's dead, stagnant water. It's not living water. In the mind of the Jew, living water is fresh, running, sparkling water. That's living water. The prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 2, verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Now, this well was about 100 feet deep, and the water that fed this well percolated through the soil to the top. So the water they collected was the water that seeped to the top. It wasn't a running spring. It wasn't a stream. It percolated to the top. Interesting here, he says, if you had asked him, he would have given you living water. When Jesus refers to living water, he's referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to John chapter 7. Verse 37. Notice here it says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, notice that, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, torrents, is what the word is saying, torrents of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here he's he's, he's revealing uh, her ignorance concerning spiritual matters she's ignorant on one hand of who he is and if she had known who he was she would have asked him for a drink and conversely he knows exactly who she is she's an immoral woman and yet he asked her for a drink you guys get that think about that she doesn't know who he is he does he knows exactly who she is she's an immoral woman and he says can you please give me a drink heavy that's heavy and he's chipping away he's chipping away bit by bit as we move through this passage he's breaking her down and let me just suggest to you he knows exactly who you are he knows all about your life and where you're at currently and if you're here today and you don't know jesus you're in good company with the samaritan woman you're not here by accident oh that's what you think but i was invited to come What do you think? You're here by divine appointment. You know, they they did a survey recently, specifically with millennials who are vested into social media. And they asked them how many people in their lives they considered authentic, true friends. You know, how many people they saw were true friends to them. Real relationships. Anybody guess how many people? Come on, people. Come on, kids. Let's go. Two. It's an interactive class here. 
Five, three, zero, zero. None of them felt they had true, authentic friends. That's a shallow life. That's what this woman was. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. He wants to enrich our life. Jesus invades her daily routine because he loves her and he is seeking her out. He uses earthly terms to drive her to the spiritual. And Jesus did this often. He did it to the Jews, remember, in the temple. You know, he said, destroy this temple in three days, I will will raise it up. Of course, he was referring to his body. In John John chapter 6, he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And for many of them, it was a hard saying. And many went back and walked with him no more. So Jesus would often use these terms to really to drive you to the spiritual. And he did this often. And he's doing the same thing with this woman. And notice what she says here in verse 11. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? He says, she says here, you don't have a vessel to draw with. I've been drawing water from this well my whole life, and it's deep. That's what the, the, actually the word she uses here is a different word that he uses for well. The word she uses is a word for a pit or a deep shaft. And she says, I've been doing this my whole life. It's never produced living water. Where do you get that living water from? Do we have to go deeper? What do we have to do here? He's, and she says in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his, his sons and his livestock? Imagine how he could have replied, Lady, you ain't seen nothing. Why don't you ask Jacob who won that wrestling match? Why don't you go look at his hip? Ask him why he's walking around funny. Or why don't you ask him about that ladder that goes to my house? He could have said all kinds of things. But he doesn't. Notice verse 13. And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Notice Jesus is the source of living water. And he says, whoever drinks of this water, speaking of the natural, will thirst again. Please note in verse 13, that word for drinks is in the present participle. It means those who continually drink from this well will thirst again. It's undeniable. You're going to continue to thirst and you're going to continue coming back here to draw. But notice also in verse 14 where it says, whoever drinks is in the aorist participle. That means those who drink once and for all will never thirst again. Jesus is using this well as a spiritual parallel to this woman's life. It's like a mirror. That's what he's using. He's using the well as an illustration to parallel her own life. She says, you're thirsty, you're parched. You're going to come back here again and again, and you're never going to quench your thirst. You've... You've been coming to this well and and you've had husband after husband and now you're living with a man because you're still thirsty. What's your well? What are you drinking out of today? Notice Jesus also does something very interesting here. She keeps referring to a well and he switches gears on her uh, uh, here. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You, you come out here every day in the middle of the day to draw water from Jacob's well, a geographical location. But if you drink the water that I give you, please note, will become in him a different location from within, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He says, I'm going to give you something that will change your life from within. The material world cannot give that to you. Each one of us in this sanctuary is destined for eternity. Every person that you see around you is destined for eternity. And God has created a void in each and every one of us, which only he could fill. 
And many of us in this sanctuary used to drink from a similar well. We had a thirst and we tried to satiate ourselves with the things of this world. Whether it's money, alcohol, drugs, or relationships, just like this woman. But Jesus says, if you drink from the water that I provide, you will never thirst. Because you will have a built-in drinking fountain. Springing up into everlasting life. And I think by this time, she's starting to get the picture. And notice verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Notice she says, give me this water. I don't want to be thirsty anymore. I don't want to come back here as well. She's tired of her life and what it become. This used to be a little girl. This used to be a teenager. This used to be a young woman with hopes and dreams. But her life had taken a different turn. And she's, now she's here at a well, drawing water all alone. Jesus gently and meticulously pinpoints her real need. Notice what Jesus says to her in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. <laughs> whoa, 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 what? Excuse me, uh, weren't we talking about living water? Uh, why are you switching gears on me here? He, he, he says, call your husband and bring him here. He just took her to a whole different direction, but he knows what he's doing. God wants us to be honest about our sin in the state we're in. He says, yeah, that alcohol you're drinking, that pornography you're watching, it's a big problem today. The amount of time you spend watching sports, the amount of time you spend, God, let's deal with that. And he pinpoints the issue. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. Atta, girl, you're being honest. You're telling the truth. And I'm sure at this point in time, her eyes are as big as saucers, because this was a rude awakening. And the woman said to him, sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, she's probably pinching herself uh, by this point um, and, uh, to see whether she's really awake because there's no way that he would have known that kind of information. I guess he is greater than Jacob, isn't he? And I think as she's processing this, you know, she's trying to avoid this awkward situation. And now she's trying to go a different route. We've been there before, right? When things get awkward. I remember when my dad passed away, um, my grandmother... And her sister came over to the house. Um, and, we you know, we're having, obviously, after the funeral, we're all there. And um, my grandmother had never been over. We invited her a ton of times. And, you know, elderly people, they don't like to leave their homes. She goes, no, no I'm fine. I'm fine. She finally comes to my house. And, and she's walking with her sister around the house. And, and they're looking at pictures. And in Spanish, um, my grandmother's sister says to her, she says, I never, how come you never told me the treasure you have? She never told her sister, her sister about us. And my grandmother had so many skeletons in her closet. Of course, she's trying to avoid the, uh, the awkwardness. She immediately tries to change the, the story here. And she's like going in a different direction. Oh, you know, and she began to go a whole different direction because it became very awkward for her. Same thing that's going on here. You just hit a nerve. Interesting. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. <laughs> Interesting how they went from, can you give me a drink, to her saying, can you give me a drink, to, hey, there's five husbands, and now she's like, uh, let's talk about religion now, okay? Let's talk about religion. He says, okay, we can do that. Now, note, um, you have to understand what's going on here. Uh, the Samaritans had built uh, a temple to worship God, a Mount Gerizim. But in 127 B.C., John Harkanius, a Jewish leader, um, laid siege to Samaria, razed down Samaria, and um, completely destroyed the temple. So what you would see in the background is just the remains of the temple, the rubble left behind. 
So when she says to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, again, all that you would see in the background is the rubble. And she now raises the issue of worship because, you know, you Jews did this. And Jesus doesn't blow her off. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. Let's go back. I asked you to bring your husband. Bring him back. He doesn't say that. He's not there to condemn her. And we would do well to learn from him. He didn't, you know, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Folks, that hasn't changed. That didn't change in 100 years. That didn't change in 500 years. That didn't change in 1,000 years. He has not changed. He is still the same. That message has not changed. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. So he says, you want to talk worship? Great. Let's do it. All right. And Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Note verse 22 here. He says salvation is of the Jews. It doesn't mean that Jews are the only ones who are going to be saved. But God chose the Jew as his instrument to communicate salvation to the whole world. But they failed. They were closing the door. They failed. Acts 28, 28 says, Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Romans fifteen sixteen says, That I might be a minister, speaking of Paul, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. Do you realize we were saved by a Jew? Does that bother you? Shouldn't. Didn't bother him. He died for the white person, black person, brown person, yellow person. Didn't bother him. But the hour is coming and now is and the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Know what he's saying here. He says the Father is seeking such to worship him. He left Jerusalem. He left Judea. He's gone out of his way for this one person who is, by all accounts, lost and considered an outcast by the world. And he is seeking such to worship him. One person has value in his eyes. And that's the love of the Father. Please note, Jesus relates to God as the Father. Something that even people, I think, are confused about today. When you talk to most Christians, they say, oh, the Lord. They say God. Not that they're wrong. I rarely hear people say, Father. Father. Jesus always related to God that way. He never referred to him any other way. He he related to him as the Father. Which speaks of relationship. And I'm sure as as she is listening to him, that's the first time she's heard that. That God is a Father. And notice here, in spirit and truth. Both are essential for proper worship. He's not telling us where we can worship, but how to worship. You know, you can have churches that are really extreme. You have the Pentecostal church, get very Pentecostal, and have very little truth. They're all emotional and little truth. Then you have the other side of the coin where you have a, a church that's just dedicated to the truth, but they're icy cold, no emotion. And God help us that we strike the balance. And some folks interpret this to mean that this is the Holy Spirit. But notice what the text says. It says, in spirit, not in the spirit. There's a a clear distinction here. And the word spirit is the word pneuma. It refers to wind. It refers to breath. But it also refers to the inner self. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 14 makes this clear that the spirit refers to the whole person. We're talking about the mind, the heart. The soul of a person. So what Jesus is referring to when he, in respect to worship, he says, we're to worship with or in our spirit. That means us, that we are engaged in worship. And he wants us to worship how? In truth. 
Because there, there's a lot of false worship going on today. And what is truth? You say, well, it's the opposite of a lie. Well, truth here contextually means that we're to worship what is true about God. Worshiping in truth occurs when it's in accordance with what God has revealed about himself. That's true worship. Think with me here. Every failure in worship, every failure in doctrine, every failure in practice can be traced back to wrong thoughts or ideas about God. And this is key. Let me give you an example. Cain, he brought an unacceptable sacrifice to the Lord, didn't he? Was a sacrifice a problem? No. He had a wrong view of God. He thought he could bring the sacrifice any way he wanted to. And God says, uh-uh, Cain, that's not how you bring it. Cain had the wrong perspective. God wants his people to worship him in what's true about him as it's revealed in the scripture. You know, again, thinking about false worship, you know, uh, let's just give me some thought here. We come here on Sunday and we sing songs and do worship that way. And that can be um, a problem. And why do I say that? Because to me, when I'm worshiping in truth, that means it has to be true about God. And unfortunately, what we see in the Christian community today, a lot of these songs, they all sound great. But when you listen to the actual lyrics, they're all talking about me versus talking about God. That's not true worship. True worship is when my heart's lifted up because I understand who God is. I don't need to know about me. I already know I'm messed up. But when I understand who God is, my heart's lifted up in worship. It's when we sing songs about the truth about who God is. That's worship. You ever meditate about a certain truth about God? Just the idea about God's grace. I was thinking about this. You go home today, spend a few moments alone. And I really want you to meditate on God's grace. And I'll tell you what, if you truly do that, you're going to be filled with wonder. You're going to realize, wow. And you're going to begin to, you're going to be driven to worship God. But we sometimes, we miss that. We want to be served. But God wants to, he really wants to stir our hearts about who he really is. That just emboldens our faith about who he is. Hmm. In spirit and truth. Both necessary for true worship. And that's what he is seeking. Again, Jesus is chipping away. He's chipping away. And here she's thinking, he's revealed my whole life. He knows I'm living in in sexual morality, and it's a Jew who's speaking to my heart. And notice here, verse uh, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, am he. I'm the existing one. That's a title given to God in the Old Testament. I am. She understood that. She understood what he was saying. And I wonder what it was like for this woman. She's saying, you know, we know Messiah is coming. And she has enough religion to know that God was going to send a prophet like unto Moses. And I think by this point, she's engaged with him. And he looks, into, he looks right into her eyes. He says, you know that person you're talking about? That Messiah? It's me. It's me. Could you imagine what that was like? I'm sure she's looking at him, trying to figure out who this guy is. He says, that person you're talking about, it's me. What's interesting about this passage is this is the first time he declares himself to be Messiah. Because when we read the other Gospels, the Jews, they couldn't peg him. They couldn't figure him out. They had all these questions. You know, you're the devil and, you know, you're filled with a demon. They couldn't figure him out. This is the first time he openly declares that he is the Messiah. And notice who he declares himself to. A woman and a Samaritan, one who's a social outcast. He didn't come to condemn. You know, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace 
and truth. And this is, he is, he is demonstrating that to this woman. What an amazing moment. Is he your Messiah? Do you know him? And for some of us, have you forgotten him? Have you forgotten him? Has your love for the Lord grown cold? Let's look at the Messiah who works. Verse 27 here. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had talked with a woman. Yet no one said, hey, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They're marveling for the obvious reasons because a rabbi, again, in that day, didn't speak to a woman. And the woman then left her water pot, went into the city. And, of course, went to go see the men. She left her water pot. There's something interesting about her leaving the very thing that brought her here. And I think she left the water pot for various reasons. Some people over-spiritualize it. Um, I like to think that this is going to slow her down. You know, when I got saved, man, excited. I don't know about you, but I was excited. Most people I know that get saved, excited. You can't wait to tell anybody. And here she is. She leaves her water pot. She says, I'm not going to carry, you know, several gallons of water. I think a gallon is like 11, 12 pounds. You think she's going to carry that thing? To town? I'm out of here. She takes off. She's going to town to talk to the men. And in verse 29, she says, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And I'm sure the men are thinking, What do you mean he told you everything? And their wives are going, Yeah, what do you mean everything? What did he say? And I'm sure the men are thinking, are thinking You know, we've known you all your life. Well, yeah, we know about you, but are you really proud about that? But notice what she says. Could this be the Christ? There's something about her that persuaded the men to go find out. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? No doubt his disciples were puzzled because when they left him, he hadn't eaten. And, and they've been talking and, you know, like, hey, what, did someone slip him a hot dog? What are they? I mean, how, how in the world can, can we explain this? And Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Uh, knowing you're doing God's will. You know, there's an incredible satisfaction in doing ministry. And I'm not referring to from the standpoint of a selfish motive. Because what I've learned from ministry is it can demand a lot from you. But my life is his. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And there are times, we, you know, where we're spent. You know, I think about Hallelujah Night, Vacation Bible School, Kids Camp. All these things require a lot of time and energy and, and we're organizing. But I tell you what, when you see a kid raise their hand to accept the Lord, you forget about everything else. Nothing else matters. You know, last year, um, just a quick story. We, we're in Columbia and, you know, we're busy all day. Literally six in the morning, we get back around 10 or 11 at night. And we hadn't eaten dinner. And we're, uh, Hernando, the pastor, was was taking us back to the hotel. Well, we're driving on this highway, and it is coming down. It's raining cats and dogs. I mean, it is pouring, and it's late. And um, as we look ahead, all was, you know, we, we see this car had flipped over to the side of the road. This car is upside down. So we're thinking, do we pull over or do we keep going? You know, it's one of those things. You see a couple people there. So you know what? Let's pull over. They may need extra hands. So we pull over. We jumped down uh, the embankment. We left Xavier in the car. Figured, Don't worry, we'll, we'll go look. We go down there, and there's this 18-year-old girl. And she is shaking in her boots. We, we take her back to the car and say, Xavier, hey, you know, um, why don't you watch her while we go look at, at the other person that's in the car? And we come to discover she's in the car. She is shaking, she's shivering, and she is scared. And she says, I'm 18 years old, and I'm pregnant. And so she is scared. So... <clears throat> uh, Hernando and I jumped back down, and, and the guy, the driver, managed to get out of the car, and, and he's, he's losing it. He's, he's visibly upset. He's crying. We're thinking, hey, you survived an accident, you know? But he says, you know, I, I'm doing this Uber thing. It's kind of an Uber thing in Colombia. He says, it's a brand-new car. It's my friend's car, and it's uninsured. 
and to complicate things even worse, to hear him sob. Just, I'm 21 years old. I've done nothing with my life. And now this. And at that moment, Fernando and I just began to talk to him. So, you know, can we pray for you? God wanted us there. And a lot of us in this room are going to miss that. We're going to miss those opportunities because we'd rather be in our homes where it's comfortable. God desires to use us if we want to. He will, I guarantee you. We went back to our hotel. We didn't remember about dinner. Not till the next day. We didn't eat, did we? No. But God wants to eat. We forgot all about it. And here's Jesus. He says, my sustenance is to do the will of the Father. Verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this a saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I say unto you to reap that for which you have not labored, because others have labored, and you have entered their labors. Imagine as he's saying this, the Samaritans are coming out of the city. They're coming out, and they see this. And the idea here is he's saying, some will sow and some will reap. There's no competition. More hands, lighter work. Some are going to sow, some are going to reap. Some of you are going to be sowers and some are going to be reapers. The beauty is we all share in the work. They say the average person, before they respond to the gospel, I've heard it seven times. That means someone has heard, someone is sowing and someone else is reaping. Are you sharing the gospel? Are you afraid? Yeah, I think we all are afraid to a certain degree, right? You don't think I, I feel like... Oh, this guy's just an intellectual. What am I going to say? He's going to have some really good answers. Be faithful. Open your mouth. Doesn't the scripture say he will speak to us? He will put in our mouth the things that we need to share. But we need to open our mouths. I understand we may not get a positive response. But that's God's department, not mine. My responsibility is either to sow or to reap. One of the two. We're not to be grim reapers, though, okay, to do it with the right attitude. Real quickly here, let's, let's look at the Messiah who saves. Verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. What a wonderful experience the Samaritans must have had with Jesus. They had him for two days. And I wonder what it was like for the disciples. Because again, they had these inherent prejudices. They never hung out with Samaritans before. There's no way. The bias was strong. And here they are. And I'm sure as they're sitting here and watching Jesus operate. They're seeing him minister to the people. Answer the questions that were, I'm sure, no doubt, heavy in nature. He saw the Samaritans and realized, they're no different than us. He saw the kids, the women men i think their hearts were changing and i can imagine as as jesus is sharing these two days he looks across and he sees the woman and i'm sure that woman is beaming from ear to ear and she's looking and all she could think is the messiah came to me came to me he spoke to me an outcast that's heavy She was already reaping where she hadn't sown. If it wasn't for her, the men wouldn't have come out from the city. You know, we're told in Acts chapter 8 that a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And the people fled from, they, they went to the surrounding regions. They went to Judea. They went to Samaria. And then we're told that Philip went to Samaria and began to preach Christ. And there was just a great movement there. People, it was an incredible response. People were responding to the gospel. And I don't doubt that that woman was instrumental, that she was there. I don't doubt it. She was sowing the seeds since Jesus left Samaria. And notice here in verse 41, And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, 
For we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Again, what a different experience Jesus had with the Samaritans versus the one he had in Jerusalem. There, they weren't receptive to him. Here, they beckoned him to stay. What a contrast. And now they say, we believe not because what you said, but we heard ourselves. They were open. They were receptive. They didn't allow their theology or their prejudices or their biases to get in the way. What an amazing moment. Just because, you know, sometimes we think people are not going to be receptive. And we discover they actually are. They are. You know, when we receive the, the free gift of God, he promises to give us living water to drink. Our thirst will be completely satisfied. And secondly, our thirst is permanently satisfied. I'm going to leave you with this. You know, John, the disciple, traveled, you know, in his latter years, he traveled to many churches throughout Europe. And they wanted him to share. And, you know, they, they help support him and they bring him up and Come on, John, share something, share something. He would get up and, and John would look at the congregation, a congregation filled of barbarians, Scythians, Greeks. He would say, love one another. Love one another. And he'd sit right back down. Here's a man who had incredible prejudice at one time against the Samaritans. And he's looking at a crowd of people, a mixed multitude of people. And he says, love one another. You don't think he was changed? You don't think Jesus had an impact in his life? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, that you are not prejudiced, Lord, that you see the cesspool that we live in and you desire to pluck us out, Lord. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but somehow this is, it's making sense, you don't know how it's making sense, but it's making sense. And you want to receive him as your Lord and Savior. You can do that right now. It's just a simple prayer. And you can just repeat these words. Father, I come to you. In Jesus' name. And Lord, forgive me. I acknowledge I am a sinner. I accept your son Jesus to wash my sins away. Lord, lead me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.